0: And I'm joined on the line now by economist and associate professor at the University of the Witwatersrand, Professor Chris Malikane, also joined by Lone Sharp, who's the director of economic analysis at uh, Profit Analytics. And uh, uh, good evening uh, to you, gentlemen, and uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And I must say to some of our listeners, we had tried to at least, um, you know, uh, get uh, some uh, lady voices here, but it seems all the ladies are out Uh, for dinner this evening because of the public holiday uh, tomorrow. So uh, we definitely understand that. But uh, uh, I'm joined by the two gentlemen this evening. Gentlemen, good evening to you and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Good evening, uh, Nayabonga, and good evening to the listening.
0: Now, uh, I I guess uh, for the both of you, and uh, I'd like us to maybe kickstart with this particular uh, a question. Uh, this election is also an opportune moment for all of us to reflect on the last 25 years or so and uh, we often say quite a bit about uh, the political breakthrough and uh, some of the political, institutional and governance strides that the country has made but uh, uh, oftentimes, I guess uh, quite reticent and reluctant uh, to reflect on uh, how the economy has shifted over the last 25 years or so and Loan, I'm going to start off with you and then uh, Professor Malikane uh, give you an opportunity as well. What do you make of the last 25 years years or so, and uh, what have we done well and what uh, could we have done uh, a lot better?
2: Well, I think there are two main phases uh, of democratic democratic South Africa. Um, The first phase was one of international acceptance and reintegration. Capital flowed into South Africa initially quite slowly, but um, as economic growth emerged and Um, political stability uh, was maintained, Uh, we had tremendous inflows of foreign capital into the country, which um, financed a lot of domestic expansion. And corresponding with local investment, we had employment growth. And really, the first stage of post-apartheid South Africa was not only a political miracle, but also an economic miracle. The second stage, unfortunately, uh, really took the economy uh, backwards. We saw a very sharp increase in inequality. More and more post-apartheid South Africa was highly beneficial for whites, and... Selected small numbers of black South Africans, but the vast majority of black South Africans didn't participate in that economic miracle. And I think politicians underestimate the power of the economy pulling the strings in the background. Um, so, for example, the emergence of the EFF. Mm. Was was a was a was a response to the marginalisation of very large numbers of South Africans um, in the post-apartheid economy.
0: How much of that loan, uh, if I can maybe intervene there, how much of that would you attribute, I guess, to uh, the reluctance uh, of uh, uh, those who are in established business or established capital? Uh, to, I guess, uh, you know, contribute to the redistribution project? Uh, uh, Because when you speak about that marginalization, one would assume that, you know, uh, people were moving in different directions, but those who were, by and large, benefited were those who historically had entrenched positions in the economy, and uh, a redistributory project would have had some of those who would be reluctant to engage in it.
2: Look, uh, as far as South Africa's specific circumstances, uh, there are two crucial drivers of prosperity. The first is getting your first job in the formal economy. That is a crucial factor for ultimate personal and family prosperity. And the second is high growth sectors. Employed in those sectors where there are plenty of opportunities, lots of mobility, etc., So I understand that it's tempting politically to talk about redistribution. You see these uh, white fat cats and the temptation is to say, you know, how how did they make all this money? There's a temptation to redistribute it. And actually a lot of redistribution has happened. Overwhelmingly, the government's budget every year is directed towards social spending. Uh, apart from, of course, um, employing a growing civil service. So I've never bought into the redistribution narrative because it's not a sustainable recipe for personal and family uh, prosperity. You need a good job in the formal sector, in a thriving industry, and that is ultimately the long-term guarantee of, of prosperity.
0: Mm, mm. But let, let me bring you in here, Professor Malikane, and we'll return to this point of, uh, I guess, uh, the sustainability or lack thereof of uh, redistribution and uh, take a look at some sector examples of uh, how that has had a ripple effect, certainly on consumer-facing sectors. But Professor Malikane, well, would you make the same assessment, certainly of the last 25 years or so, that uh, by and large, uh, the white community has been the biggest beneficiaries, but also added to that... Um, uh, it has probably uh, the lack or the marginalisation of the uh, uh, black majority in South Africa has, uh, by and large, created certain kinds of uh, uh, you know political developments that uh, have uh, uh, had an impact on the economy.
1: Yes, no, I I agree that uh, in the past 25 years, so for example, to start during the era of uh, uh, former President Nelson Mandela, up to the era of uh, President Thabo Mbeki. The, the dominant framework has, has been the framework that was laid down by the IMF and the World Bank, particularly the IMF in 1993. And so it was a continuation of the neoliberal f- framework, which basically uh, emphasized the minimal role of the state, uh, liberalization, and uh, which led to a massive uh, increase in the relative size of the financial sector mm. as relative to the industrial sector, sure. and massive de and job losses. And so that economic structure, uh, that transformation in the economic structure, overlaying it was, as Lone Sharp was saying, a a redistribution strategy, which was a fiscal redistribution strategy. But that strategy was based on a a narrowing economic structure, productive structure. Mm. So it was not sustainable. And so when we hit this crisis, this global economic crisis, the structure basically unraveled. And, and and that exposed the weaknesses
0: of the entire strategy neoliberal strategy. Professor Malikan I li- I like the point that you are raising I guess of uh, you know the growth of finance and uh, financialization is not just a uh, phenomenon that we've seen uh, here in South Africa but if but if I look gentlemen at uh, uh, you know over the last, of the recent while, if you look at uh, sort of retail numbers and uh, the challenges that many retail producers have found themselves, there's all manner of things that you can attribute to that. But a big chunk of it really has been uh, a business model driven by. Uh, uh, you know, uh, purchases by consumers driven through credit. But also in addition to that, with the slowing in, uh, uh, you know, real wages and the slowing in uh, the employment creation, you've probably had uh, people not having as much in their pockets to go out and spend. And that's had a major ripple effect, not just on retail, but consumer facing sectors. So we see, I guess, uh, how when redistribution happens off uh, an unproductive base or a relatively declining productive base, what some of the impacts can potentially be. Loan?
2: Well, uh, I disagree with the good professor on the point of the global financial crisis. What we are observing in South Africa is of our own making. These are own goals that we are scoring against ourselves. Um, I dispute that liberalisation occurred. Uh, apartheid was a sprawling governmental state which infected every person's life. And unfortunately, uh, the ANC stopped along that route only long enough to climb on the government bandwagon. We've got more government spending, a more bloated civil service, worse performing public enterprises uh, than we ever had. I, I can't see that liberalization has happened. Maybe exchange controls have been liberalized, but only partially. Um, by and large, I don't see the liberalization that the professor uh, complains of. What I see instead is a, is a private sector, which is really the generator for consumption, investment, and ultimately growth, uh, really being strangled by by increasing regulations. Um, the temptation to control the economy through these uh, regulations, has proved too tempting. And I think the reason why government control and increasing control of the economy has been such a political priority for the ruling party is that, of course, it's a way to distribute, to distribute partially the economic benefits to a handful of cronies. So I've always been an op- opponent of... Uh, Black economic empowerment. Not because I wouldn't like to see black people advance. I think there's been far too little of that. Um, These uh, businesses in, in South Africa are increasingly encumbered by white dinosaurs. I would love to see some fresh energy in these businesses. But BEE was overwhelmingly designed to put immense amounts of money in the hands of a few politically connected cronies rather than a massive redistribution to the people which I would have supported.
0: Mm, mm.
1: Professor Malikane? Well, uh, let me give a few examples of how liberalization happened. Sure. Um, the first one, if you look at the, the privatization of telecom, mm. uh, there was massive, uh, as Loon mentioned earlier, inflow of um, of investment to acquire the shares in Telkom. That was uh, spawned by financial liberalization. And then uh, the second example was the sale of uh, ISCO uh, to Aselumital, We know mm. that now it's foreign-owned. Uh, it's an instance of financial liberalization. And then uh, the third one is the uh, the listing of the big South African conglomerates. Conglomerate. Uh, uh, that led to financial outflows uh, out of South Africa and robbing the country of its capacity to finance its own investment. And then the last one, of course, is the sale of ABSA to, to, to Barclays, mm. which, which in fact failed because Barclays ultimately pulled out. Why? Because of the weaknesses in the economic structure in the South African, uh, South African economy. So I can go on and on, but the overarching impact of, of financial liberalisation, the one that I've just explained, has been the massive outflow, profit outflows, that could have been used to finance domestic investment, so as a result, the country became more and more dependent on a, a foreign investment to finance its own
3: investment, mm.
1: domestic investment because the, 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 the large chunks of the economy are foreign owned, and that limits the country to chart, to chart its own path of development
0: mm. Pro- professor malikani i mean I often find quite interesting when we talk about this investment drive and we 're looking for uh, you know, X amount of uh, billions of dollars in investment, that that we seldom ask what kind of investment we're talking about. And, and that's what I think you're introducing here, that there are different kinds of investment and uh, uh, these different kinds of investment have different productive outcomes. Where have we failed in the last 25 years or so to attract the kind of investment that is able to deal with some of our social challenges, able to gainfully employ many of those who are semi-skilled and unskilled, uh, who in, in many ways continue to suffer every day with the legacy of Bantu education, the apartheid system. Uh, uh, w- where have we failed in uh, ensuring that we have that kind of investment?
1: I think some of the basic things that could have been done, number one, was to massify uh, skills development and training um, uh, in order for uh, in investment to come through to the industrial sectors to begin with. The second thing, what happened was the, the relative shrinkage in, in aid investment, particularly now we're sitting with, for example, the case of, uh, of Eskom, an uh, investment that should have been done in 1998 was delayed. And yet, if we had invested during that time, uh, expanded the capacity of the economy to export through investment in, in, in rail, for example in public transport to lower the cost of living, Uh, in IT, ICT, uh, we could have gone a long way in improving competitiveness and attracting investments in the the industrial sectors. But uh, that did not happen because of the neoliberal framework which said government must step out of driving investment in the economy and allow the private sector to do
0: in line with what market for is loan mm. Lone, uh, you, you spoke earlier on about what you feel is excessive regulation and uh, the uh, limitations that that is placed uh, on uh, uh, investment in our economy. Maybe uh, would you like to expand on that?
2: Well, I mean, I'm listening to the economy that Chris is describing and it's not the economy that I'm observing.
0: Hey, well, I well, Put two mean, economists uh, in a room and uh, the, you'll probably get <laughs> two the, different outcomes. The
2: economy... The economy uh, all economies in the world depend on foreign savings to finance a significant degree of their domestic growth. But if you're an investor sitting in the United States or in Europe or in Asia, and you have money to spend, which is typical of developed countries, you want to invest it in high-growth economies um, that, uh, that seek the funds to finance their growth. The problem is we can't attract The financial capital because there is no growth. So if you want to unravel while we are in the political and economic mess that we're in at the moment, which is really 10, nearly 15 years of economic stagnation, you have to unravel what the cause is. So I've noticed over my career, for example, just to give you a practical example of the impact it has, South Africa used to have the most extraordinary entrepreneurial management. Management seeking business opportunities, seeking ways to provide better services of better quality and greater variety to consumers. This is how companies like Discovery emerge from nowhere and become international superstars because of their unique model of, of, of providing health insurance. There are countless businesses like this index, address, you name it, so, South Africa has been an extraordinary hitter above its weight class in terms of the private sector. Through my career, I now notice that the valued managers are the ones who can tick boxes, ensure compliance to regulations. Uh, there are now separate functions in organizations dealing with risk and compliance of various kinds.
0: The well, no, I mean, if we didn't, we, we'd probably have multiple Steinovs, right?
2: Well, Steinovs... Because uh, the
0: ingenuity and the innovation that you're talking about uh, also has, I guess, a downside risk. Uh, if you look at the acquisitive appetite of uh, uh, Mar- uh, Marcus Huston and his team, uh, depending on how you look at it, many people would say, you know, those were, that, that was a good, uh, adventurous, risk-taking uh, management team, which uh, uh, in many ways, I guess, uh, was also a one that uh, led to a spectacular collapse of... Uh, uh, a major company.
2: Look, it was, a, it was a collapse in the media only. Sophisticated investors knew yeah. that there were problems at Steinoff okay. a long time ago. Um, you know, when the German government uh, went sniffing into Steinoff's affairs, now seven years ago, people started asking questions. Unfortunately, it is a feature of capitalism that you do promote risk and some enterprises fail if we didn't pursue risks, there would be no old mutual there would be no um anglo american there would be no
3: none of the
0: Ah, Lone, we seem That's to be correct. losing your line there. And uh, uh, if you can just maybe pause there slightly, loan. Uh, we'll try and re-establish the line with you there. But uh, I'm in conversation with uh, Professor Chris Malikane uh, from the University of the Witwatersrand uh, School of Economics and Business Science and uh, also with uh, Loan Sharp, uh, who is uh, Director of Economic Analysis at uh, Profit Analytics. And we're talking and taking stock of the South African economy over the last 25 years or so. What do you make? I'd love to hear from you. Give me a ring on zero eight nine double one zero double three 110 7. How has that economy, uh, I guess, had a major impact on uh, your own life? And uh, we do know, certainly when it comes to uh, uh, issues of uh, poverty and inequality, uh, South Africa continues to take pole position in many of these matters. And uh, Professor Chris, I'd maybe like to bring you in here on uh, the point that uh, loan was raising there while you try and re-establish the line with him, Uh, saying that risk-taking and, of course, uh, some of the uh, uh, collapses that we've seen here with Steinhoff and uh, many others, uh, uh, South African companies that have caught the attention of uh, Uh, certain sort of research analysts here uh, uh, across the markets uh, have had. Uh, What do you make of that? And uh, more importantly, uh, I guess, on the other side, uh, what do you make uh, of uh, the uh, involvement of labor unions and their role in the development of the political economy of South Africa over the last 25 years?
1: Yes. uh, On the question of risk-taking, it's true that um, it's in the nature of um, capitalism that there should be risk-taking and that should come with with reward. Mm. But but um, uh, there are varieties of capitalism. There are regulations. There's a reason why regulations are there. It's because the capitalist system is not a perfect system. Even the capitalists themselves understand. Hence, we've got concepts such as asymmetric information. Yes. Um, yes. Because in financial markets, for example, people deposit their money in banks, and banks are supposed to manage those monies in a manner that is in the interest of the depositors. So, but that often does not happen. Sometimes it doesn't happen, and when it doesn't happen, it has huge ramifications for the economic system. Hence, you need regulations to ensure that those market failures are not um, as, as pervasive as they, they would be without them. So, regulations are a necessary feature of the capitalist system. Without regulations, the system will simply be in crisis.
0: Mm, mm.
1: Now, now on the on the on the on the other issue um, that he mentioned, you know, my argument that. Um, Uh, we need a very strong um, domestic-based finance system that is going to finance our development. Um, It does not preclude the fact that uh, foreign investment can can come into the country. But what the country needs is that it needs to have its own long-term predictable investment strategy, uh, funds that it can control. That is why you have countries such as India, for example, where you find that some investments are driven mainly by domestic funds. And I believe that South Africa, um, if it's well managed, it can uh, harness those funds' uh, domestic savings to finance long-term development.
0: The other thing, uh, uh, Professor Malikane, of course, is uh, around, I guess, uh, the role that uh, uh, the trade unions have played, not only in the labor markets, but uh, in the economy more broadly. And I'd be interested to hear from you, uh, not only when it comes to, uh, I guess, uh, lobbying and advocating for certain labor market reforms, but many of them have also been involved in the investment side of the economy. And uh, certainly as someone who uh, worked uh, at uh, uh, one of the federations a few years ago, I'd be interested to hear your view on that.
1: Well, um, over time, when it comes to protection of workers' rights and so forth, trade unions in South Africa have been weakened um, by these processes of liberalisation and casualisation that we've, uh, we've seen uh, over the, the past 25 years. But I think for me, as a critique of the trade union movement, is that um, there seems to be no attention being, being uh, placed on the funds, workers' funds, that are that are managed by... Asset managers, for example. Mm. I believe that if workers can control their funds, they can determine the direction of investment. I mean, the biggest investors in the South African economy are, in economy are workers. And uh, I hope that the trade union leadership uh, becomes cognizant of that and not uh, look uh, far afield to say um, we should do things in a manner that do not scare investors away, for example. When, in fact, it's workers
0: who the largest investors in this economy. Mm, mm. Lone, uh, you are making a point there before we uh, lost your line there. You want to uh, continue on that vein? And of course, you would have heard what Chris was saying uh, mm-hmm. about... Uh, in In particular, worker control of uh, many of the investments. We can see, of course, uh, how big a part the uh, GEPF continues to play from an investment perspective in our economy. And uh, if you think about some of the other, uh, you know, uh, trade union investment funds and uh, the positions that they have in multiple companies across our economy, uh, it certainly does stand to reason that uh, uh, trade unions should be thinking more intentionally about uh, where their investments go to, and uh, more importantly, the um, I guess the investment philosophy that underpins uh, the operating companies that they invest in?
2: Well, I think um, increasingly trade unions are irrelevant in the private sector. Only one in seven workers is unionized in the private sector. And nine in 10 workers is unionized in the public sector. I think that tells you everything you need to know about why the private sector has fully stocked shelves, has a wide variety of goods available to buy at reasonable, if not fantastic, prices. And why, I mean, Chris talks about the developmental state, the idea that the government should become more involved in the direction of investments. You may remember that telecoms spent billions, billions, just before the emergence of mobile phones, on installing call boxes on street corners across the country. That's what happens when the government is in control of investments. You end up with 20,000 workers at Telcom dictating to 40 million uh, consumers what services they can have, at what price, etc. We're in the same quandary with ESCOM. I would say the developmental state would have a stronger argument if we could find one public enterprise in South Africa one government department that is working well i don't mean brilliantly
0: just well sasria loan
2: yes yes sir. i i think i think these ideas of um you know i think these ideas of the developmental state of the government taking uh, greater action and initiative in the investment process. I, I think they really are um, an ivory tower compared to the reality on the ground. We know what would happen. Uh, we would have a handful of projects awarded to politically connected individuals. Uh, that's been the history of the last 25 years. I would like to see broad-based empowerment. I would like to see inclusive employment equity. I can't stand seeing politically connected individuals who do not have the merits arriving in these in these positions, and, uh. and that is independent independent of race. Um, I'm not a fan of South African management. I can tell you, um, you know, we, we can talk long and hard about how South African management is failing the economy, but I think to look to the government for greater initiative is a big mistake.
0: Okay. Gentlemen, I I would like us now to maybe shift our attention, I guess, to uh, what you think are the economic priorities uh, that ought to inform uh, whatever considerations uh, of not only uh, cabinet selection, but uh, even uh, economic interventions uh, of the sixth administration. And uh, Professor Malikana, I want to start off with you uh, and uh, maybe briefly talk about monetary policy and uh, uh, just what uh, uh, you would call the policy mix uh, from an economic perspective that we need to achieve the industrialization that you are talking about uh, and, of course, uh, many of the other uh, economic benefits and ensure that we achieve uh, those in a manner as inclusive as is possible. And uh, we'll take this brief uh, spot break, but uh, when we come back on the other side, Professor Malikan, I'd like to hear your views on those ones. And, uh, of course, to you, our listener, also give us a ring on zero eight nine double one zero double three double seven. On the other side of this, we're going to be taking some of your calls as well, and I'll be taking a look at some of the tweets that have already come through. Stay tuned. Professor Maligani, Yes. Yes, I was saying, uh, what would you say are the key priorities and considerations uh, that uh, you think ought to inform policy reflection and even the selection uh, of a cabinet and the configuration of the economic cluster for the sixth administration? And maybe let's start off here with the monetary policy, a space uh, that you certainly had uh, quite a bit to say about. Uh, and, uh, of course, we can then go to the broader economic policy mix. I
1: think for me... Um the first thing that must uh, change with monetary policy is to broaden it uh, so that it has employment as, a, as a, another target, so that we have a dual-target uh, a dual target monetary policy framework. Um, uh, we've been calling for this for the past uh, decade or more, and um, uh, what has happened is that we've seen that the Bank of New Zealand has shifted towards employment targeting, as, and uh, the U.S. we know is dual, it has a dual target. So in the in the context of South Africa, um, the idea of a dual target seems appropriate, especially with these high levels of unemployment that are also having so history, like history, are uh, history dependent. Mm,
0: mm. Yeah. For, for, yeah, yeah. Carry on.
1: And then, but for me, I think that at the center of all the policies that we should be thinking about is, is the need to meet the, the basic needs of the people. You know, we've in, inherited a lot of um, uh, 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 gaps. Uh, in meeting the basic needs of the
2: people we mm. can
1: place the needs of the people at the center and then use our industrial
0: Prof, are you still with us yes yes, yes sorry about that please go ahead
1: yeah place the basic needs of the people at the center and then uh, and then structure our industrial policies towards that aim and then allow fiscal and monetary policies and financial policies to support the industrial policy towards that in Then I think is
0: the best way to go. Then from a trade policy perspective, uh, any views on that? We've seen, uh, and I had a chat uh, with the uh, Economic Development Department's uh, Minister Ibrahim Patel, uh, uh, just before we had this conversation, and he was raising I mean, uh, some of the things that they've had to do from a trade policy perspective, uh, be it in the sugar sector, or even when it comes to the poultry sector, uh, to try and uh, keep jobs, and to try and, I guess, uh, you know, uh, avert some of the dumping that we've seen, uh, in instances, of course, where there has been dumping. What do you think from a Trade policy perspective, we should be considering.
1: Well, the biggest constraint is that uh, uh, South Africa is part of the WTO, mm. but but um, uh, there are things that can be done. For example, we, there are the scope to lift um, tariffs in certain sectors of the economy that you want to build value chains around. So I think um, uh, the scope to increase tariffs in some of the of the sectors. And also for iTech to be more responsive when when uh, 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 industrialists on the ground are saying that there's a need to change the tariffs, there needs to be that uh, fast response from
2: iTech to protect the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Loan from your end?
2: Uh, oh, I completely agree with Chris that the monetary policy of this country is a total disgrace. Um, when when the Reserve Bank complains that it needs to be independent. You've got to ask yourself, independent of what? Independent of accountability? Independent of consideration of the economy? Uh, I wouldn't agree that uh, the Reserve Bank should have employment as its goal, because I'm not sure how they could drive employment. But they certainly could have economic growth as a goal. I mean, in the world today, there's hardly inflation anywhere. Prices are falling all over the show as new technologies are bringing goods cheaper to consumers. Nobody in the world is as concerned about inflation as our Reserve Bank. You want to ask, what do they know? And more importantly, what do they not know? Um, Our inflation targeting approach has been a disaster. Hmm. Our interest rates are 5 percentage points above what they should be to just be in equilibrium with the economy's needs. I completely agree with Chris. The Reserve Bank doesn't get to me that it should, and um, the Governor of the Reserve Bank is extremely sensitive to being criticised. Sure, needs someone who is capable of taking the heat in that kind of powerful role. Mm.
0: So, gentlemen. On, on- Yes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I mean, I, I think both of you are making some very, very interesting points, certainly on the monetary policy issue. And loan before you get to some of the other things you want to say, I, I'm quite interested to hear from you guys uh, your views on the ownership debate. Many people have suggested, you know, that uh, it's a side debate because the big issue really is about the mandate of the bank rather than, I guess, uh, who are its ceremonial shareholders. Loan and then uh, Chris.
2: Well, the, the, the ownership uh, means is, is meaningless. Uh, every now and again, uh, a German investor... Craving dividends pops up at a meeting and creates controversy, uh, threatening to call in the shareholders and have the bank dissolved. I mean, they're, 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 these these are old retired people who've lost touch with reality. Um, I don't think that's the important debate about whether the Reserve Bank is uh, has private shares in issue or whether the government buys them back. I, it's, it's irrelevant to me. Uh. Um, if it's going to make some German dentist somewhere a few thousand euros, uh, you know, let them have it. What's much more important is that, um, is that the Reserve Bank serves the needs of the economy. And yes, stable prices are a, are a necessary feature. For economic growth, but they are not the only feature. Mm. We have to have interest rates that do not serve the interests of the bank. The Reserve Bank has become captured by the South African banks, and I find myself here on the extraordinary, in the extraordinary situation, of supporting the EFF's idea that we break up the bank, and if not, we break up some of these big banks that uh, monopolise. Um, monetary policy. The Reserve Bank is there to serve the South African banks. Mm. It's not there to serve the South African consumer,
0: which it should be. Prof Malikane, on the ownership debate? Well,
2: for me, I
1: think what is important is to look at it from the standpoint of the balance sheet. You know, we must remember that the Reserve Bank is issuing a liability which is considered to be an asset. And this liability is earning a 0% nominal interest rate. And for me, that is a very powerful instrument in the hands of um, of the state. So to have that that power to reside um, in private hands, I think is the height of irresponsibility. You know, um, because it, it it also constrains the ability of the state as a whole to to pursue its its, its development agenda. Mm. I mean, it's not for, it's, it's not for nothing that the central banks or reserve banks. When nationalized in the 40s and the 50s. There was a reason behind that, and it had to do with the fact that of the power of of these institutions to create a liability that ends zero nominal interest rate. Mm,
0: mm. Okay, let's take some of the calls here, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and uh, continue our conversation. Manja, uh, Ustetegwini, good evening to you. Good evening, sir, how are you? I'm well, thanks, brother. How are you? Why are you saying that the Reserve Bank should not be concerned about the issue of job creation
1: mm. and that the fact that uh, our Reserve Governor is oversensitive? I think uh, he is really out of touch, with reality. When you look at the, how America works, uh, the Central Bank of America, uh, job creation and investment is key to their mandate. I don't know why you is saying that our Reserve Bank should not be involved, in, should not be concerned with job creation.
2: Okay. Can I clarify that? Yes, yes, I briefly. That, I didn't say that the Reserve Bank shouldn't have such a mandate. I just said I can't see how the Reserve Bank has tools that drive job creation. Okay. I mean, the Reserve Bank has the money supply and interest rates, and those have a very marginal relationship to employment. Yes, but, but what the, but Reserve the Reserve Bank can people, drive yeah, is
1: economic
0: growth. One the macroeconomic
1: growth, because the Reserve Bank has that mandate as well. South Africa is a detrimental state and it should be concerned, look at South Africa, we are sitting with
0: more than 40% unemployment. Manja, let's pause there slightly. I'll allow you to uh, finish your point on the other side. Manja, last bite. Mindlos. Ah, we've lost Mindlos there. Uh, Sviso, you're on the line as well. Good evening to you.
3: How, How are you?
0: Good, thanks, man. How are you?
3: Good, thanks, man. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've reflected on some of the comments uh, that your panelists have had there, you know, uh, you know that was quite interesting. Mm. Um, and I'll just reflect quickly on a couple. So the Reserve Bank, uh, on the Reserve Bank mandate, first and foremost, the growth is part of the Reserve Bank mandate. And so they talk about price stability in context of sustainable economic growth. And so when they, when, when they go about price stability or the, or the monetary policy, um, it's always in context. I mean, it wouldn't make sense for them to take any of those positions without taking into account um, what each of those uh, policy choices will have on economic growth. But, um, but Fiso,
0: if, if we can just pause on that one. I mean, the, the one tool they have at their disposal is the interest rate. Um, and uh, of course, that would then depend on what relationship you assume there's, there is between interest rates and economic growth because if you want to rein in inflation uh, and uh, you hike interest rates, it does have some kind of impact on uh, the economic growth.
3: It does. And, and also, I mean, so, so you need to understand first and foremost that a lot of our inflation is cost-push inflation, and so what what we mean by that is that uh, it's not demand-driven local mm. demand-driven inflation. Sure. It comes from the fact that we're buying oil and all the other things, and so we're not in control of those price increases. But then, what it will do, however, is that once if you don't control um for for inflation in context of that and then anything that happens globally can literally wreck our economy mm. without us you know taking any material control of of, of how those prices are impacted
0: okay okay interesting then, yeah yeah but,
3: but you know but you know a, a couple of other things you know in terms of just the the, the, the conversation that we had is again is that when we look at um, I just want to talk about kind of where we've come from. And and um, a lot of the problems that we are looking at in our economy uh, from an economic growth point of view is is because a lot of the sectors have become uncompetitive. And so often we, we want to look at government um, to answer for those things. Um, but, you know, you look at manufacturing, there's something we call the import penetration ratio. And what it's done is that from 1994 until today, it's increased, I think, almost five times or whatever. Mm. And, and, and and what it means is that we are needing to import more just to sure. satisfy our, our domestic economy. And so, um, you know, if you look at what happened to textiles, you look at what would happen to a lot of these sectors that... Um, when trade liberalization took place, for example, they ceased to, to remain competitive, primarily because, uh, you know, we haven't understood what it means to play in a global landscape. And so I think when we talk uh, kind of the, the, sure, the sure. economy and, 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 the, uh, and the economic growth conversation and how, uh, you know, we talk about the successes of Bitvest, et cetera, mm-hmm. and, you know, is that we need to hold private sector accountable as well, that they they haven't, invested. They haven't invested in their own sectors in order to remain competitive. Sure. As a matter of fact, they've moved our economy and you see the extent of the, the sector concentrations that you find there and how so, those are, are oppressive for yeah. economic growth because then so, they, you know, they can control prices, etc. And yeah. you know pioneers has been fined, so, Group Plus has been fined. You can name all these companies that have been fined so, for so. price fixing because of the extent of the sector concentration. That so, so,
0: I think the point is very, very well, well made and uh, I definitely agree uh, with that viewpoint. I mean, if you look at the concentration that we have in our economy and uh, some of the uh, key issues around industrial learning, upgrading of capabilities, uh, which would, uh, I guess, uh, bring down the unit cost of some of the production down. Uh, we've probably missed the boat for the last few decades here in South Africa. But let me get some closing remarks uh, from my uh, two guests here, uh, 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 Chris and Lone. And Lone, let me first take remarks from you and I'll give uh, Professor Malikana the last word.
2: So I don't buy the arguments that South Africa needs uh, structural change to grow. How come the economy grew between 1994 and 2009 by an average rate of 3.2% and in some years above 5%? That was a, a, a strong period of growth in the economy.
0: But there was a commodity and boom, then, the credit based extension, no, yeah?
2: No, overwhelmingly over that period, commodity prices didn't play ball. Um, so, yes, and there were global crises and all of that. But on average, the growth over that period was 3.2%. Mm. And sometimes above 5 I don't buy the argument that there is something structurally unsound in South Africa. We've demonstrated that growth. It happened in 2009. In 2009, confidence from international investors, from local consumers, from domestic companies, from local investors, collapsed. And uh, we are hoping tomorrow that there will be the restoration of some kind of confidence that we can resume the growth path that was interrupted for 10 years. Uh, President Ramaphosa is correct when he said the last 10 years have been wasted. And I really hope that tomorrow provides the kind of direction needed to restore the growth that we've proved to be capable of and which is rightfully ours.
0: Professor Malikane? Well, uh, I take the opposite view.
1: Uh, my view is that we need a structural transformation in South Africa. We need broad-based industrialization in South Africa. And for that to take place, we need to uh, transform the way the financial system works mm. and how we finance our, our investments. And at the center of all of that should be meeting people's basic needs. So I think that without placing people's basic needs and, and, and undergoing this massive transformation program, I don't see our country growing at rates above three percent in the next five years i mean india during the crisis was growing at about six percent and we need to learn from those economies their structure their political economy south korea is speckling with unemployment rate of near three percent two percent unemployment rate we need to learn from those economies their structure and so forth so um i, I think uh, we need to, 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 to undergo a fundamental structural transformation and policy change to grow
0: this Gentlemen, uh, thank you very much uh, for your time this evening. I really, really appreciate it. Professor Chris Malikane, an economist and a professor at the School of uh, Economics and Business Sciences at uh, Witts University. Loan Shop, a director of economic analysis at uh, Profit Analytics. And uh, we'll have to leave it there. 9 p.m. is the time. That then is a final whistle for us on this uh, evening. We only hope over the last two weeks or so. Uh, we've uh, better informed uh, your uh, choices that you're going to be making at the ballot uh, uh, box uh, tomorrow. And I uh, wish you all the best. And of course, uh, do uh, wait out those cues as uh, you make that decision. But also, if you've decided not to show up, uh, also remember, even that is a political choice. Remember in 2016, that a uh, big chunk of uh, certainly some of the electoral shifts that we saw were because people decided not to go. So, uh, if Bati, if you vote vote. Uh, Even that is a political choice. I leave you in the capable hands and the soulful sounds of Vicente. Big thank you to Chola, not yours, for putting together this great product. Nikumuza, Nubakalunina, Ningawana Bumkuba, Ningawana Benzagan, Namatola Nyongande Kulhelana, Mizindo Zachi, Nembekas, Cheke, and Azalangamazin, Nomangu, Chanu Tessanga, Susan, and Nina, Kasi Banga, Le Economy.